A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Plus, you know, I do other stuff now. Yeah. I'm a professor. I'm a tenure-track professor. Okay. It's incredible. It's like the best job ever. The Globe and Mail has been spoken of on this program pretty critically, but it's important to remember the Globe and Mail is the paper that once published Jan Wong. Do you remember Jan Wong? Do you remember shortly after 9-11 when Jan Wong smuggled a box cutter onto an airplane to test security? Do you remember when she pretended to be a maid and did this whole series looking at class in Canada? She would be hired by rich people to clean up and she wrote about it. Or the time that she had this celebrity interview column where she would take celebrities out to lunch and she interviewed a homeless woman for one of them. You remember the Jan Wong who dared to bring up race and racism in Quebec in the wake of the Dawson College shootings? Remember when she was denounced by Stephen Harper for doing so? Jan Wong, Jan Wong was punk rock until she was stabbed in the back by her editors and thrown under the bus. And I'm going to talk about that with her in a moment. I am thrilled to have her on the show. Stick around. It's a good one. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible 
heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Today I say goodbye to FreshBooks.com, the first sponsor of CanadaLand. Thank you very much to all the folks at FreshBooks for helping me get the show off the ground, for all of your support. You have a wonderful product. I say that even now when I am not paid to say that. People have asked me, do you really use FreshBooks? Do you really like it? I really do. I will continue to use it. I'll continue to recommend it to people. Probably not as often, but I will. Anyhow, I I really could not have asked for a better partner in getting this show started, and uh, I will always be appreciative for that. Thank you. I am also thrilled today to welcome Canada Land's new sponsor, Audible.com. And for listeners of Canada Land, Audible is offering a free audiobook when you sign up for a free 30-day trial. One title that they suggest that listeners of Canada Land might enjoy is David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm, no, I don't don't download that. You know what? This is the book you should get for your free audiobook. Uh, get Jim Henson, The Biography by Brian J. Jones. Like enough of Steve Jobs. This is the bearded hippie visionary that you need to know more about. Did you know that Kermit the Frog was originally blue? Did you know that the Muppets were on the first season of Saturday Night Live and they sucked? I didn't know that. I needed to know that. Check it out. And if if you get a different audiobook as your free audiobook from Audible and you love it, tell me about it and uh, and I'll give it a listen as well. And maybe I will recommend it to the listeners of the show on a future podcast and give you a thank you for your recommendation. So audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. So uh, my, The students are listening to it. That's how I found out. Like my students said... That's how I knew. I didn't know. It was, so you're got, you've got a good audience, young. Yeah. Your student, uh, Connor J. Yeah. And then another student told me about it. Uh-huh. Like, so it's not just one. They're, this is what they listen to. That's good to hear. Yeah. I but, think it's really good. But this is what you do. You teach people yeah. how to do journalism. Yeah. How do you sleep at night? <laughs> well, I think journalism is... Uh, very important and never going to leave us. The problem with the industry today is the delivery system, which yeah. is a business side. That's management. That's what people get their MBAs for. The journalism is the core product, and that will never change. So how people figure out 
to get it to consumers and charge for it and make money is not the journalist's problem and should never be the journalist's problem. That's the business end. I compare it to milk. A century ago, maybe 150 years ago, people had cows in their yards. That's how they got their milk. And then as we urbanized, we moved into cities and uh, people had houses and the milkman delivered the milk to your front door in nice glass bottles. And women didn't work then, mostly, so the housewives would take it in. Mm -hmm. Then we, it became a little bit more of a problem, so they built these little cupboards in the walls of houses where you'd have a little opening, and they'd put the milk in there so it wouldn't freeze. And then that became unviable because women started working, and they wouldn't take it in anyway. And so then we now buy our milk in stores, and we buy it from the drugstore. So what I'm saying is we still drink milk. We don't have cows in our yard anymore, but we always will drink milk and we always will need news and news gatherers and storytellers. I agree, but your analogy only holds if you're teaching people how to farm and milk cows. If you're teaching people how to be milkmen. No, no, I, I'm sorry. I, my analogy is the milk. I think we're the cows. I think the journalists are the cows because we produce the story. So you're always going to need cows. I don't foresee any future in a world without cows. And I don't see a future in a world without journalists. I'm yeah. talking about the milk producers. We produce the milk. We're the cows. We're not the farmers. I think there's, it's debatable. There will be cows. There will be – somebody will be making news whether or not it's a job or not. I mean I, I, and I, I'm not you know, uh, isolating you in this. I'm, I'm speaking yeah. to uh, an audience of media students tomorrow and I really feel like my speech should just be like get out now, learn how to make video games or pickles and you'll have a job. But this is not a, a job anymore. It might be – you could teach people for years how to make delicate Fabergé eggs. But to take <laughs> their money in tuition yeah. uh, on the – idea that they are learning a uh, profession. Mm -hmm. Is there any ethical responsibility on the part of the journalism schools and the journalism professors? No, because I don't think we, uh, we, we teach students specifically for a market. The market will fluctuate. It's the same in any industry, engineering, computer science, nursing. You can't say that part of the deal is when you graduate with this knowledge, there will be a job waiting for you because the market is fluctuating. And mm -hmm. certainly in the media world, traditional newspapers are dying. That's for sure. But there's a whole new world of the internet, and nobody can predict how it's going to shake down. I think we're in the, the period of disintegration, but also uh, a new creation. So what I can teach my students is the core uh, skills of journalism. What is a story? How do you report it? How do you find the people that don't want to be found? How do you file freedom of information requests? How do you ask a tough question? And how do you get another question out when the guy's running away from you? Yeah. So these, this is what I'm teaching. And I don't think it's immoral. I think it's utterly moral to make sure that we train the next generation of journalists because that's such an important part of democracy. The specific problem of jobs, what I find, because I teach in, at St. Thomas University in Fredericton, and many of my students come from the Maritimes, there are jobs. They're not well-paying, but there's lots of jobs out there, and they're in the small places. If you want to go work for the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail or the National Post, it's much harder, right? Mm -hmm. But that was always the way it was in journalism, always. And so I tell my students, okay, so you're going to go work for the Podunk Times. And you know what? Think of it as graduate school with a stipend. And it's good because there's several reasons. You're, it's so small, you're going to do everything. 
and you live in such a small place that everybody you write about, you're going to meet at the grocery store. So you better get it right. Because yeah. if you don't, your feet will be held to the fire. And the third thing is when you make a mistake, it won't be national. No one will know. It'll just be this little tiny place that knows you messed up. Right. So I... I, I sleep at night quite well, thank you. <laughs> I tell them start tweeting now. Yeah, you know, start building your following exactly. now. Do, do everything as publicly as possible. We're, we're, that's Come what we're showing audience. them. Like I don't know how to do it, but we bring in people who can show them how to do a web page. Yeah, you know, start tweeting. How do you tweet? All this information. They're going to be okay, and all the good ones get jobs. Yeah, and that's always been the way it was in journalism. You don't get a job unless you're good. I don't even know if it's about getting a job anymore. I, I think you're right, and I think that it would be a shame if whatever comes next and something will come next. And in fact, there's more news than ever. I read more news than ever. Yeah, uh, it's a golden age for news readers. It's great. You want to find out something specific, you can find out something specific instantly. Yeah. But the problem is, you don't. Nobody's curating the big picture for you. Yeah. I used to read a newspaper from the beginning to the end. I used to read three papers a day, beginning to end everything, mm -hmm. even the ads and all the death notices. I just read everything. And now I don't do that because I'm picking online, right? Sure. But I, I just saw, it is really bad right now because I just saw somebody yesterday from the Globe and Mail. And I said, so what's happening there? And she worked in the photo department. She, she took a buyout. But she told me they're down to one photographer in Toronto. The Globe and, and Mail has yeah, one photographer. One photographer, oh Fred God. Lum. And then, you know, John Lehman in Vancouver. That's it. That's yeah. astonishing. Photographers. Yeah. So it is terrible, and they are going down the tubes. Whatever is left standing or whatever it looks like, the things you're teaching, one hopes are immutable. You'll still have to confirm your sources. You'll still have to know how to yeah. get information. We're, we're trying to fight that whole tide of citizen journalism where one guy sits somewhere and doesn't really do the kind of reporting that I think is important for journalism. Mm -hmm. In other words, get off your butt, go out there, talk to people who don't want to talk to you, and then talk to the other side who also don't want to talk to you, and then think about it, and then do some research and give us context. That's the old journalism. And so that's what I'm trying to show my students. It's not easy. Yeah. It still requires a lot of getting off your butt, going out the door, and knocking on doors, and trying to find people that don't want to be found. One of the things my students, I try to make them do... Um, my fourth years, I try to make them do one a week, and you should hear the, you know, the blowback. But what I find is they they really like to cover staged events. They keep pro proposing pitching stories, and I go, "That's a staged event." Yeah. The credo of a a journalist should be, "I don't want to go to any story that wants me there." Yeah. Right. Because otherwise, you're just one of the potted plants, and they're staging some PR thing. Don't give me a walk for cancer. Somebody said, I want to cover this. I said, oh, please. My eyes are glazing over. And they're horrified. Yeah. Because they're nice in the Maritimes. And I'm going, yeah, but it's not an interesting story. Mm -hmm. It's just not interesting. So please get me something good. Yeah, I think that that sensibility is always going to be useful. Though I think that you're, you're quick to discount something, you know, in terms of feet on the ground, one reporter is never going to be able to get as much as what already exists. And there's a new emphasis placed on the person who can sit at their computer and interrogate and pull from. Yeah. And I think back on uh, the, 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 that mass shooting in Scarborough in Toronto. Okay. The Danzig uh, shooting. Okay. And uh, there was a guy on Reddit who went through the tweets of oh, that community okay. and tracked back, 
you know, it was a, it was like a, a yeah. block party. Yeah. And yeah. tracked back a couple of weeks as people started to talk about the party that was coming and there were tensions between this person and this person. And th- the night of the shooting, this guy on Reddit said, hey, I don't know if any of this is accurate, but oh, I, th- I think I've pieced together the no, narrative great. of who did what here. Yeah. No, it, I think that's great. And I think mainstream and, and and professional journalists need to get on that, too. Yeah. Like, you can see the the uh, the mass stabbing in Calgary that happened. Yeah. I've been looking at the coverage of it, and I think the, the, the reporters that knew how to get onto the Facebook, there's old-fashioned reporting there. Some of them get nothing. Like, if you read the Globe story, it's very shallow. They don't have much. They're waiting for the event where the parents of one of the victims makes a statement. That's old journalism. And then I looked at the National Post, and I only look at them because I was in the Calgary airport on that day, and and it was free. It was right there in the waiting room, and I'm comparing it. The National Post actually managed to get to a medical professional who treated the kid. Uh Uh-huh. That's incredible journalism. Yeah. They tracked the person down. But I was hearing on the CBC somebody who was looking on the kid's Facebook page. Exactly. Yes. I'm choking. I'm so excited. You know, and he had been ranting in the weeks leading up to it. Exactly. So that's, Isn't that great? And to get access to that, I don't know, maybe there was, I I don't know if if, if it was public or maybe some reporter had to friend one of his friends to get it. Yeah. This is a type of investigation now. Yeah. And and especially younger reporters know how to do that. Because they are on Facebook. But I still think sometimes you have to just get out there and talk. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's probably I mean, somebody true that people got are loath to, to do that. Someone got to a cop who knew the family. And yeah. so, there, so there was all this other information about the mental illness of the young man, uh-huh. which was not reported in other media. The Post got this information. I thought it was really good. You mentioned the Globe. Yeah. Can we talk about the Globe? Of course we can. I, I actually had to fight to be able to talk about the Globe because originally when we were when they were firing me, they wanted me never to ever speak about the Globe again. Yeah. I mean, I just – that's not feasible. But, but you had to give them back the severance check, didn't you? Ah. Uh, well, it's still in play. Okay. I didn't, I didn't give it back. I am still f- defending myself. Yes, I, the arbitrator said I had to give them back all the money. Uh-huh. And I said – well, I'm not. Yeah. I'm still defending myself. So it's, we're taking uh, that into court. You're going to fight that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's wrong. I think that I was wrongfully dismissed after getting clinical depression from a job-related incident. And um, they fired me over it. And now they want, you know, I wrote the book out of the blue, talking about what happened, Mm -hmm. which was part of my long fight to have freedom of speech. I got that right. And now they're saying, no, they want the settlement back. So, yeah, I'm defending myself. It's a tough thing for a reporter to be gagged. It's toxic. Yeah. It's toxic. It's toxic for anyone to be gagged, but... um, Especially a reporter. I mean, we go to the mat all the time for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And, of course, I worked in China for many years as a foreign correspondent for the Globe and Mail, covering people who would be sentenced to prison for exercising a freedom of speech right, for just being critical of the government. So I feel very strongly about that. That's why I'm I'm not rolling over. I think that a lot of people, you know, that would, would be... Shocked at that parallel that uh, the censorship from the Golden Mail is akin to what the PRC has done. And yet, I'm going to go with you down that road a little bit because, you know, you had something to say about what happened to you there. 
and they were asserting some legal order to stop you and mm-hmm. your publisher ultimately wouldn't publish it. Mm-hmm. And I'm experiencing as I pursue this project, the many real obstacles to just speaking freely in this country. They exist. Mm-hmm. Yes. And um, what we forget is that media companies are also corporations. And corporations typically con- want to control the message. So for a media company, it's very odd because they're into freedom of uh, information. But at the same time, they're a corporation that has a brand, mm-hmm. uh, a corporate identity, and a lot of money and a lot of power. I think reporters are very naive when they think that because they uh, go after stories and they go after certain people, they think that they are free, but they're not free. They're working within a box. Yeah. And if you step outside that box, uh, you will find the full might of the corporation coming down on you. And I think I'm particularly sensitive to this because of the years in China. I'm, I think so. And I, I used to be a business reporter. Mm-hmm. So all of that. And I've all, always been a, a, a reporter that tried to push the edge on stories. So I think, I think I'm just not the type to, to kowtow. I wonder if we could place your experience with The Globe into this larger picture of what's happened to journalism. Because it feels to me like it was a bit of a watershed moment that anticipated some of the changes. And the kind of journalism you were doing that got you into trouble – was at the time, I think, very forward, progressive journalism. The, the mixture of editorial with reporting yeah. it anticipated what was going to happen on the internet and, and the, I think, the acceptance of the truth that there is no such thing mm-hmm. as a completely objective story was really forward thinking of the globe. Yeah. And maybe they were not comfortable themselves with how far they were pushing that when it came back on them. I, I think it's actually... Not a huge matter of principle or anything like that. I don't know the, for sure, but I told you I was a, a business reporter. And so I'm, I, I've always asked myself, like, okay, you guys send me out to cover this uh, school shooting at Dawson College in Montreal. I'm in constant contact. I'm telling you what my theme is going to be, what I'm going to say. I write it. I make the deadline. You edit it. You actually ask me for more. And what I said was about this Purelin attitude in Quebec. You yeah. actually ask me for more. So, And it gets vetted at the, top, at the highest levels. And then you publish it. And then there's this firestorm from Quebec. And all of a sudden, things are changing. So, okay, fine. You're publishing... Uh, letters to the editor. I mean, Stephen Harper writes a letter. Well, we know why politicians do that. They they want the votes in Quebec. They need Quebec. Um, Jean Charest writes, okay, so we get all that. But why does the Globe corporately turn on me? Like, why does the publisher say, we're going to investigate this? Because I didn't plagiarize. I didn't fabricate. So uh, what, what what are you investigating? I've thought about this for a couple of years now. And we were owned by, I shouldn't say we, the Globe was owned by BCE, yeah. Bell Canada Enterprises. Bell Canada Enterprises was headquartered in Montreal. That's the board. So given the huge backlash I got from all aspects of Quebec society, maybe the board called the publisher of the Globe and said, get rid of her. Maybe. Maybe. Because it's so weird. I'm. I was a high producer. I was... Uh, a good reporter, and and all of a sudden, I'm a piece of crap, right? So I think it could be as simple as corporate. 
Do you think it's corporate or do you think there's a cultural aspect? What would be the cultural aspect? In the news business, to have a very controversial article like yours is good. Exactly. That was good for business. Exactly. And it's it's shameful that you've had to kind of explain to people what an editor is there for and what a <laughs> masthead is there for. Yeah. Uh, and it's shameful that they threw you under the bus in the way yeah. that they did. And, and as I understand it, it, it was thoroughly discussed between you and Greenspawn before, yeah. you know. Well, uh, no, no. I didn't actually talk to Greenspawn. Uh, he's, you know, I'm in Montreal and I filed my story. Who did you the rehearse editors. the media reaction with? Was there something that happened where? Oh, Greenspawn. Yeah. Oh, Greenspawn. Afterwards, when he's, he called me in because he was going to write a critical column about me. And yeah. I went, excuse me? Did, didn't you didn't you read this before it went in? It was like one of the lead stories in the weekend. And I went, didn't you read it? And And he had it in front of him. And that's when he confirmed. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known. It's always good to be a reporter. Yeah. You, know, you just ask these questions. <laughs> yeah, he read it. Um, and that that is debated whether or not he read his own paper, you know. Well, he did because he told me. He said I read until here. Of course he read. It. He read until here, he said. He said he read until I wrote about the daycare. I still can see him. You know, I'm in his office and he has the offending articles. Now the offending article, be- you know, before it was like the great story of the weekend. And I remember he had circled it and he said, yeah, I read until there. And I said, oh, okay. So you read the Pure Lens stuff. Yeah. You know, they have no courage. Yeah. People have no courage. But isn't that itself a cultural decision that you, you – it went too far. It upset – It upset somebody at the at BC, I'm assuming. It's like McLean's with, uh, with Marty McLean's Patrick's story. McLean stood up. They stood up for their reporter, which is what you expect yeah. a real media organization to do. Mine didn't. You know, you say, of course, politicians are going to try to get those Quebec votes. Heads of state are not supposed to single out journalists. That's in, right. in, in, in a country with free com- expression. That doesn't happen that often. It was very – it was inappropriate. And parliament passed a unanimous um, condemnation of me and the globe. Isn't it over your head at that point? At that point, yeah. the state is putting in its crosshairs – the press, yeah, and saying get in line, yeah. That's where you think the press would close ranks around you mm-hmm. and say fuck you. Yeah, that's what you'd think. Um, but um, something else was happening because yeah. normally you're right. A newspaper would revel in the fact that the prime minister wrote a letter. I didn't care. That yeah. was fine with me. Share, we're we're fine with that. It means oh my god, they're noticing us. So normally you'd be pretty thrilled. But there was something else going on that was uncharacteristic. So when you call it a watershed moment, I think it was a disgrace that the Globe did that. I mean, stepping aside from the personal, like, oh, I'm I'm the reporter on this story. I think it was a disgrace that they did that to um, a reporter who, who wrote the story. Like, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. They, see, it doesn't add up unless you are a business reporter and then you think about boards and power. Yeah. I mean, that's one explanation, I guess. I don't – what's the other explanation? I don't know. I mean, I had Anne Rahula on the show and, yeah. and, and we were talking about how the Globe makes decisions that preserve the stature and the imprimatur and the pomposity of the Globe mm-hmm. and it protects those things beyond its bottom line. Why you keep Margaret Wente there, is yeah. that good for business? Well, that was terrible. She plagiarized and they defended her. 
I wrote a story that pointed out a truth in Quebec politics, and they threw me under the bus. What you wrote was true. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look at look at all the subsequent <laughs> events in Quebec. And relevant. Politics. It's relevant yeah. that uh, these, these killings in, in – I lived there for 10 years. They don't treat minorities very well. They do have an uh, – there is a strain of racism and xenophobia. Yeah. I should explain that what I said was aside from – uh, Quebec talks about Pure Land. I said it's the only province in Canada where it's politically correct to talk about racial purity. And I said, <laughs> pure wool. What a real, yeah. what a real Quebecois is. What a yeah, real, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it means yeah, pure wool in France. In in Quebec, it has a double meaning. It means old stock Quebec uh-huh. uh, heritage. And I also said that all three school shooters had taken place in in Montreal at the post secondary level, and that all three were ethnics. Yeah. And I said, of course, all three are crazy. But hey, wait a minute. Let me tell you, it's very alienating to be an ethnic in Quebec. Yeah, I think the sum total of what you're saying was there is a trend here, and yeah. it's worth looking at. It's one paragraph. Yeah. It was one paragraph. But I still think I, I was right. You don't have to agree with me. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you Stephen know. Marsh was right. I mean, he yeah. wrote that Ford was fat. There's no truer sentence you could, uh, yeah. you know, you can make. Exactly. And I love the word fat. It's yeah. such a nice short word. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you get fired for saying these true things. And, and uh, I mean, while we're talking about race, mm-hmm. the globe, it might be more there in, in a certain sense to kind of like uphold a certain kind of old white Canada. How yes. did I mean, yes. you were there for a long time. And I was one of the... Few, very few visible minority journalists. And what I think they never even understood was that, you know, racism is a real workplace hazard if you're a visible minority journalist. And they didn't ever acknowledge that. Yeah. I think they forgot that I was Chinese, you know, because I just, I'm just there, right? But you were different. You were a star reporter. They p- featured you prominently again and again. They 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 traded on your personality and they they built you up as a an attraction to the reader. I, I'm going to say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won I won a newsroom award, an internal newsroom award. So yeah, I'm officially a star. You're officially reporter. a star. And reporter. my my name was up there on the wall for winning. You know, an NNA. I'm not trying to puff you up. They, no, they, they, I'm just saying objectively, yes, you're right. They dined out on you for a long time. And, yeah. and yet the, the other big personalities associated with the globe wouldn't go and pose as a maid. Right. You know, from the perch of a column yeah. decreeing what's good and what's bad and what's sensible and what isn't is a different role than a reporter who got her hands dirty to yeah. the extent that you I did. I like being a reporter. Yeah. Cause... I wonder if, the, if, if you were never – Internally, and I don't know much about the Globe's internal culture, but did, well, tell me about that. Did you feel like you were fully part of the inner circle there? I didn't want to be. The way that they protected their <laughs> own in certain instances and the yeah. way that they didn't oh, in your case. Oh, right. And I remember your talk with Anne Rahala, and I wanted to say that um, I think uh, you and, and Anne um, Rahala is a professor of journalism at Ryerson, and she was my foreign editor at the Globe and a great editor. Um, I wanted to say, I think you discussed why I never rose to management. And I have to say that um, I think really good reporters never want to be part of management. I mean, why would we want to stay in the building and go to meetings? The reason I got into journalism is for that adrenaline rush when you're on a story, Mm -hmm. where you're going after a bad guy, or you're writing a wrong. This is what... Um, gets us all excited in the morning why we love our work. We don't go there to be uh, to get a title. 
Like I always strenuously resisted any kind of title. Yeah. My name card always just said reporter. And I would go on shows and they go, so you're a senior reporter or you're a, you know. I say, no, I'm just a reporter. I wear mm-hmm. that with a badge of honor. That's that's most important to me. And I no, I didn't want to be in management. Yeah. They're all miserable in management. <laughs> right? You know, you also anticipated a lot of trends in, in the rise of the ambitious personality reporter. I mean, you know, in the internet age, it's less and less about the masthead. And you have these uh, Nate Silvers and Felix mm-hmm. Sammons and these people who get bigger than their institution – and that seemed to be something that was there was a tension there, yeah, w- between you and the globe in that sense. Well, you know, they were happy to capitalize to a certain extent, but I wonder mm-hmm. if that didn't earn you enmity. I don't know. If you want an edgy reporter, chances are you're not going to get edgy only exterior. Mm-hmm. You might get edgy inside the newspaper too. So if you're a good manager, you have to deal with that. And I, I'm not a Jekyll and Hyde. What I what I am is what I am. I don't – I mean, some reporters manage to dial it down, uh, but I don't. I am what I am in the newsroom. And, it, you know, I've been a reporter. I was a reporter for over 30 years. Yeah. I've worked at various newspapers, and it's always been fine. So I don't think – you know, there people always try to find a meaning, and I don't think there's a meaning. I don't think it's like, oh, she became such a pain in the ass – um, they had to get rid of it. No, it's not. It's very hard to explain what happened. And I only can grasp at, you know, uh, boardroom machinations. That's the only explanation. Otherwise, it makes no sense as a business decision. Yeah. Because when you have a producing reporter, it doesn't make any sense. When you have someone that does the stories that other people don't do, then it doesn't make any sense. No. I mean, if you've got something, yeah, just, a news story that everyone's talking about, that's what the business is supposed to right. be. Right. That's what you really want. But it want. did create an incredible amount of pressure. I mean, but, I mean, I, I guess we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Because I'm not in management. Do you think that there's any aspect of it that you feel like introspective about in terms of your own personality and your own history? I mean, you, you have, you know, you write about feeling alienated from Western culture as, as a teenager and as a college student, and then you ultimately uh, became disillusioned. Right, and embrace it all. Yeah, with, with, with Maoism and, and, yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, it's sort of a, a, a series of romances in your life or associations that burned really hot and, yeah. that, and that ended in, in acrimony. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of that. Uh, so you, you could say the romance with journalism burned really hot, but I don't know. It's 30 years, more than 30 years. With the Globe. With the I mean, Globe, it I mean, was almost 20. I landed at the Globe, and it felt like my home. You took heat in your lunch with Jan Collum for being yeah. abrasive, yeah, which is what a reporter should be. Yeah. But you don't seem to have much of an appetite for the politics that happen oh. w- w- within the newsroom. Yeah, because I'm not interested in the politics in the newsroom. I'm not interested in the management and who's up and who's down. I'm not interested in that. I am interested in the stories. But these are fiercely political places, these news organizations. Yeah, and I try not – I mean, I try to survive by doing really good work. Yeah. That's how you survive. Um, you, or you can ask his or, you know, you can get to be a deputy something or other. But that's boring. Uh, I – I tried to do my best work all the time. I tried to always, you know, not cut corners, try to really do a good job. And for me, the abrasiveness was very interesting in the journalism world. 
but I'm not interested in politics of uh, the organization. Yeah. Or, you know, really. When I did my lunch column where I interviewed celebrities, I really loved that because I felt like I'm going to get something that hasn't been reported before. Yeah. So it, that was the aspect that I really liked. I want a fresh angle on the guy. So when I interviewed Don Cherry, I had no idea what was coming. I did my research on him. And and my colleagues, oh, they said, oh, you're going to get him because he's such a racist and blah, blah, blah. So I go out with Don Cherry, and he's not like that at all. The, the ordinary human being Don Cherry was very actually fragile. He was fragile because his wife had died, uh, I think, in the previous year. And he, he couldn't cope without Rose, who had been – I mean, they, I think they were teenagers when they got married. Right. And, and she died of cancer. And he was really fragile, and, and I think he, he, his eyes filled with tears at one point in the interview, and, you know, he was very gruff, and he talked about his daughter-in-law, who was not white, she was Filipino, who looked after him, and lived across the street, and looked after him in the sense that if he forgot to close his garage door, they had a remote, and they would close it for him. So that's what I wanted. Yeah. That's why I liked it. And if he, if he really was a racist, I would have really been tough on him. Yeah. Because I was only tough on about 20% of my columns. I went back and I looked because yeah. I put out a book about them and I needed to understand how tough was I anyway? Only one in five. A lot of people would not imagine that that is the scoop, you know, that, that yeah. observing someone's fragility or their yeah. humanity, but that can be as much of a revelation as asking them a really burning tough question. And, that, and mm-hmm. that's about responding to what's in front of you. And, and I mean, what's surprising? I mean, with Don Cherry, him being racist would not be very surprising. He's been right. racist before. Yeah. But him being vulnerable in that way. Yeah. And and almost crying. Yeah. And, um, you know, losing his, his drive for his zest for life because without Rose, he said, I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, he, he stands and eats a can of beans at his sink. Um. He knows how many bottles of beer fit in a vegetable drawer in the fridge. Those are the kinds of things that I want to know as yeah. a reporter. I'm trying to un- sort of unravel the facade mm-hmm. and see what is really there. And um, who would who would rather do management than something like that? I would much rather be a reporter. You didn't want to be a manager. Did you want to be a professor? I always felt like when I get old and tired, I can just be a professor. <laughs> and I didn't expect my career to end uh, the way it did. I, when the Globe fired me and I was clinically depressed, they fired me because I was clinically depressed. Let me make this clear. I know that I was thinking of teaching always in the back of my mind, but I didn't expect to go in that early. You know, you could have lunch with anybody you wanted who came to town yeah. and ask them any question you wanted. Yeah. And you were there watching the authorities shoot into the crowds at Tiananmen Square and you could yeah. you could go and to be a reporter is a license to experience the world in such a direct and meaningful way. And for people who are curious and people who get addicted to the adrenaline of that, mm-hmm. be it fueled by curiosity or just, you know, the lust to kind of know something first or report something first, I see all of these people who have gone to retirement kind of just, they want to come back. They want to come back. No, I... One reason I thought, first of all, I think reporting is the best job in the world. But when the Globe fired me and I was still recovering 
from clinical depression, I couldn't imagine going back into a newsroom mm-hmm. and being sent out on another shooting story. Like, that is not what I want to do. There's too much. I, I think it's comparable to PTSD. When you have been treated like that, it was the avalanche of hate mail and the death threat and and on, from Quebec. And then on top of that, it was being flung under the bus. Mm-hmm by the organization that you risked your life for. I'm not exaggerating that when I say that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at Tiananmen. We were sent down to 9-11. There were all kinds of things, and I never questioned it. I think I, when they wanted to send me to Afghanistan, I, my dad said he didn't want me to go, and I said, okay, dad, I won't go. So right. I declined Afghanistan. But that's the only assignment I ever declined for the globe. And I think there's this real betrayal that... A journalist feels because, you know, you send us into danger and we don't say no. We don't even ask for a bulletproof vest. We're idiots. We just run out there with our notepads. And so when you turn on us and you betray us, I think you break our hearts. Mm -hmm. And so I I really didn't want to go back into a newsroom. And so I I like teaching, I think. It's really fun. and also what I've discovered is there's no adult supervision. I mean, my entire career goal was no adult supervision. Yeah. And when I'm a teacher, there isn't any. I didn't know that. Yeah. Plus you get these summers off, you know, and I can, I still write. I mean, I write, I write a column for the Chronicle Herald. So that sort of feeds my, right. uh, my need to write. And I write for Toronto Life magazine. Yeah. Um, so I think I have a pretty perfect life. Plus... I get to live in the Maritimes for half the year. You've mellowed. No, I don't think I've mellowed. You should hear me in my classroom. My kids don't want to do obituaries. They want to wait until people aren't so upset about a death. <laughs> they say, can we do it later? It's like, no. You know, are you kidding? It's uh-huh. news. You know, you got to write that obit right now, and you got to go down to the funeral home to the visitation. I make them do obits. I figured out... This is a good way to combine fear of approaching people who don't want to talk to you with news reporting and profile writing. Yeah. So I'm making them <laughs> do four obits. You're teaching them abrasiveness. Yeah. Get in their face but, with the but, mic. But how to be nice about it. Yeah. You know, I say don't use the word obituary. Say you're writing a profile. The community wants to know. You know, I really like teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to go out and do another shooting or Calgary stabbing. I don't want to do that. That's the kind of story I would have been sent on. And in the old days, I would have loved to go. And now I don't want to go. I've done that. And you know what's really scary is I told you I was in Calgary uh, the day of the day after the stabbings. Yeah. And so all the newspaper headlines were page one, you know, mass murder in Calgary. And it, I was in I was changing planes in Calgary and they had stacks of newspapers for free. And nobody was taking them. Yeah. Nobody was reading them. And I, I don't know why. Because it, it gets your hands dirty? Like, what is that? But everybody was on their tablet and their smartphone. But they didn't want the free I'm the only one taking a free newspaper. Well, it's replaced it. I mean, I think part of it is just that, you know, that job, you know, for, and it's humbling for us to realize that it's just reduced to, like, there was a job. And the job was that people in their idle moments needed to read something and have something in their hand. And that job has been filled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever you're getting on so that. So even for free. Whatever you needed at that moment in the airport or in the, you know, you it, needed you that thing. You got free Wi-Fi. Yeah. 
So even for free, even on the day of the biggest mass murder in Calgary history, yeah. even when people are trapped in an airport with two-hour layovers, they don't want to read the paper. You're dead. You're dead. Not you personally. That's your Canada Land show. I hope you liked it. You can email me anytime at jesse at jessebrown.ca. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at jessebrown. The website is canadalandshow.com. If you haven't yet, get your free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash canadaland. And I'll have the next podcast for you on Monday. If you like this show, recommend it. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.